This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. There's renewed debate in Israel about ultra-Orthodox Jews being exempted from military service. With the war on Gaza escalating, there are now calls to remove that exemption. But what will it take to do it, and how much politics is at play in this debate? I'm Hashim Ahlbarra, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests in West Jerusalem, Professor Ephraim Imbar, President of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. In Tel Aviv, Akiv Eldar, political analyst and former columnist for the Haaretz newspaper. Also in West Jerusalem, Yehoshua Pfeffer, community rabbi and executive member of the Netza Yehuda, a civilian organization that supports ultra-Orthodox Jews serving in the Israeli military. Welcome to the program. Professor Ephraim, the army is bracing itself for what could potentially become a long, prolonged military campaign in Gaza. And for this, they need more soldiers to join, more reservists. The only way to do it now is to convince the Haredim to join the army. All these considerations, are they enough to change the mindset of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community? The Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox community uh, is uh, not homogeneous. And there are definitely segments within this community that are more likely to accept uh, some kind of uh, national service, be it in the army, be it a civilian service. Uh, And they uh, are understanding that the social pressure as well as uh, pressure coming from the Supreme Court of Justice, who leaves them no choice but uh, to integrate into the Israeli society also by joining the military. The hardcore obviously will not uh, be part of it. Uh, And maybe Israel should think about uh, exemptions only to uh, the best studying uh, uh, students After all, uh, the study of Torah is indeed a Jewish value. And as we have uh, exemplary positions, exemplary uh, sportsmen that are exempt from service, the same treatment should be given to a much smaller number of uh, students of yeshiva, of uh, uh, academic uh, Torah studies, uh, and uh, to try to find a compromise. Akiva, this is a pivotal moment in Israel to the point where uh, equal sharing of the burden has become at the center stage of the political debate. Where do you see it moving forward? Well, as Ephraim said here, you have a very unique combination, if you like, of the timeline of the High Court of Justice and also coming from inside the Likud. Uh, the Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, 
went uh, out to the media to declare that he will not be part of the deception of the court and the Israeli people, the Israeli society. As a minister of defense, he knows that Israel cannot actually afford security-wise and socially-wise this inequality. Because we are not talking, Hashem, about inequality in the quality of life. We are talking about life itself, literally. It's uh, who is willing or uh, is ready to risk his life in the battlefield and who is exempted. And I think that uh, actually if we can give Hamas any credit for something, this is what they did to us in October 7th. This has sent a clear message to the Israeli society that uh, there is no, shouldn't be any difference between mm -hmm. a student who serves in the reserves and in, in Gaza and uh, for four months mm -hmm. missing his... Uh, missing his lessons at the university as a student of uh, law or a student uh, of uh, medicine and a student in yeshiva who is studying Torah. Uh, and uh, I think that Gallant has challenged Netanyahu like he did at the beginning mm -hmm. of the crisis over the judiciary reform. And I believe that he will go all the way with Gantz and Eisenkot, the other partners of the coalition. Rabbi Yehoshua, how do you see this whole debate? Is it a politically motivated debate or it is about time for the ultra-Orthodox community to understand that they need to change for them to keep the society united? Well, I, I like that framing. First of all, I, I won't give credit to Hamas for anything, but I, I think that, of course, the current war has raised this issue in a much more... Um, urgent way than before. Previously, before October 7th, the main issue about ultra-Orthodox integration into Israel was mainly the economic issue rather than the army issue, because it was generally held that we could have a smaller but technologically advanced army, and therefore there wasn't really an urgent need for the integration of ultra-Orthodox young men into the IDF. Now that's completely changed, and everybody understands there is an urgent need for this, and it's not so much politically motivated as socially motivated. It's about a very large part of Israel's population, creeping up to 15% of Israel, that generally doesn't do army service, alongside other issues of integration. But it is very important to understand that from the Haredi, from the ultra-Orthodox perspective, this isn't just about we would rather study Torah. This mm. is about what the army represents. For the ultra-Orthodox, there's a narrative around the army that this is Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, saw two basic purposes for army service. One of them, of course, is to defend the state of Israel, but the other one is to serve as the melting pot for creating, for molding a new type of Israeli Jew, which is very different from the old exilic European-style Jew. And the ultra-Orthodox, they wish to perpetuate, they wish to maintain and to continue on the traditional image of the Jew from what it was before the state of Israel. And therefore, they are extremely suspicious of the army in terms of not just mm -hmm. defending and then we need to leave 
the study benches of Torah study, but what will army duty do to the image, not just to the image, but to the ethos mm-hmm. of the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox young man? And this is something that requires building trust. It won't happen by coercion. Coercion has been tried a little bit about a decade ago, and it led to a, a large um, regression in ultra-Orthodox participation in the army. So coercion is just not a good option. I okay. think there can be... Yes, go, well, go ahead. There's much we more to be said. Plenty it's a long of, uh, and quite plenty complicated of, uh, topic. angles to cover here. Evraim, you've just heard Rabbi Yoshua talking about basically the ultra-Orthodox community willing to preserve a way of life which has been there for generations and for them is important. They believe it helps protect the unity and the identity of the Jewish people, but they're skeptical of the military establishment. They're skeptical to take a decision that might change their own way of life. How do you respond to that? I think this is a real perception on their part, but if they they want to be citizens of this state and if they want to benefit from uh, uh, all uh, the goodies that the state gives to its citizens, they must take part also in, in its defense. I actually, uh, I'm even ready to, congi- to condition the right to vote on uh, some kind of national service. Uh, they, uh, they cannot be part of a nation without uh, sharing the burden of this nation. We are a nation that is threatened uh, by uh, our neighbors. We, are, we have great security needs. And if they want to enjoy the benefits of Israeli medicine, if they want to enjoy the benefits of our social services, they also ought to uh, share the burden. Mm-hmm. And if they don't want to share the burden, I will not give them the right to vote. Akiva. The, this debate, is there any concern that it could further create more political divide within the society to the point where sometimes, for example, people, they've been, the uh, media, when it was talking to people on the streets in, in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem, and people were basically saying, we cannot afford to see funeral just in certain neighborhoods, not on the other side of the city. They were referring basically to ultra-Orthodox community neighborhood uh, where people are exempted from military service. Yeah, actually, this issue is crossing political and uh, even social and economic lines. Uh, I think that the the vast majority of uh, the Israeli, not only secular, but also the uh, Zionist Orthodox, believe in equality. And uh, uh, the fact that, uh, as uh, Rabbi Yeshua mentioned Israel should be a melting point. Uh, it's, it's still part of the Israeli ethos. And uh, it's uh, important to remind the viewers that in 20 or 30 years, uh, we might see orthodox almost majority in Israel. And Israel cannot survive without a strong army, as we saw right now in October 7th. So it's not just a matter of uh, more equality and that everybody has to serve and there mm-hmm. is uh, no taxation without participation or no participation without taxation. It's a matter of Israel's existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about 
60,000 young people who are exempted. And the Jewish people survived in the Gola in, in Europe. Well, my great-grandfather served, who was a rabbi, served in the Prussian army. And, you know, he wore the same outfit as the ultra-Orthodox in Masharim in Jerusalem, but he was enlisted and he had to serve his country, let alone to serve the Jewish country. I think mm -hmm. that it should be considered a big privilege. And as Rabbi Yoshua is doing with uh, uh, his unit, mm -hmm. uh, he shows that it is possible to be a good Jew and a good soldier. Okay. Rabbi Yeshua, I want to ask you this question, if you don't mind. Do you believe, because the Haredim community seems to be pretty much offended this is coming from the military establishment, asking them to change a way of life. What if the rabbis, the highest religious authorities, decide one day it's about time for the Haredim to join the army? Would that be on its own enough to make the seismic shift that the Israelis are looking forward to see happen? Well, it would be enough in theory. However, it's important to realize that changes within the ultra-Orthodox world generally don't come from the rabbinic establishment. The rabbinic establishment sees its role as preserving and conserving that which we've been doing for all these many centuries, while changes often come from the field. And in this case, too, the fact that there is already an ultra-Orthodox battalion in the IDF, which doesn't represent the mainstream of ultra-Orthodoxy, but rather more the periphery. But the fact that it exists is not something that the rabbis created, but there was a leading rabbi that gave his permission. And also here, if we're going to see a trend of ultra-Orthodox entry into the army, it will be more bottom-up from the field, and then will receive um, rabbinic authorization or rabbinic acceptance rather than being led by the rabbis. I think that the discussion here, mm -hmm. which has mentioned a demand based on equality, needs to be softened a little bit because absolute equality is never possible. Even today, there are religious soldiers that serve less time in the IDF than secular soldiers. And of course, there are many secular uh, individuals who also don't serve in the IDF. And there are many different units and types of, of duty in the IDF. So I don't think we should be looking for mm -hmm. absolute equality. But if you look at some of the religious, mm -hmm. um, religious Zionist calls for ultra-Orthodox engagement with the IDF, rather than absolute equality, it's a call for responsibility. We're together here. We're a unified nation. You need mm -hmm. to step up to take that responsibility. And responsibility can also be differentiated. We can leave a certain percentage in the yeshivas, in the Talmudic academies, and mm -hmm. others can join the IDF on different levels. Okay. The more we have participating in different types of units, whatever it is, the greater the, um, the, the, the identity with the IDF and with Israel, and then things will become easier as time goes on. Evraim, let's try to um, unpack where do key players now in Israel stand when it comes to the exemption issue is concerned. You have Gallant, adamant, this has to happen. Benny Gantz is on board. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu seems to be in the most extremely delicate situation. How do you explain this situation to our viewers? 
we should be aware that uh, there is also a political competition for who is going to be the next prime minister. And uh, each one positions itself uh, to the best of its, its ability in order uh, to be able to be the leader of the next government. Uh, so it's not just a question of uh, principle uh, in this situation. There are political considerations that complicate uh, the issue and make it more difficult to solve. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's quite clear that Gallant wants to be prime minister, that uh, Netanyahu wants to continue to be prime minister, uh, as well as Gantz. So uh, uh, I'm not sure they see the good of the country okay. and the need for social cohesion. Uh, they need, they see more their personal ambition. And Akiva. this is, of course, okay. not very good. Akiva, is this an indication that you have Gallant, Gallant wants to see Prime Minister humiliated, embarrassed in the near future? Because he does understand, like anyone else, that there's absolutely no way for Netanyahu to say, yes, I am on board, knowing that he would lose the most important block in his coalition, which is basically the uh, ultra-Orthodox? Well, I think that uh, Gallant uh, is in a position that he's doomed if he does, he dooms if he does not. He doesn't want to be part of uh, another attempt to tell the High Court of Justice some false uh, pretenses that uh, we can have it both ways, and we will reach some kind of another uh, combination with the ultra-Orthodox that uh, they, they will be able to serve a uh, few months. It's part of, of the bluff. He mm -hmm. uh, also knows that probably in the next elections, he will not be a candidate to be the Minister of Defense, since he was also, and he admitted, Unlike Netanyahu, he took responsibility for the blunder of October 7th. So he hasn't got much to lose, uh, short of his, his dignity and uh, his reputation oh. as uh, an honest politician and a former major general. And he is also talking to his milieu. And he knows better than everybody else that, oh. as I said before, we need those people to serve in the army. And I wish that one day we will also have the Israeli Arabs, the 48 Palestinians, being part of our defense forces. Okay. Rabbi Hushva, I've been listening to you basically saying that the seculars have to understand who we are, where do we stand, and they have to be appreciative of our own historical concerns. Now... You have your own organization, which is trying to integrate the ultra-Orthodox Jews in the military establishment. Do you believe that this could be the moment for you, for the Habridim, to move a step forward for the sake of bridging the divide with the, uh, with the, with the, with the sec with seculars? Well, I, I think that absolutely this, this must be a time to step forward because we must not step backwards. We cannot go back to October 6th. We cannot go back to the wars of the Jews among themselves 
And without some kind of resolution of this issue, we run the danger of taking a step back to the pre-October 7th day. And that is an impossibility for the sustainability of Israel. Now, how do you take that step forward is a delicate question. And I think it requires mutual understanding on both sides. Of course, it's up to the Haredim to be, to the ultra-Orthodox, to be able to take a step forward and embrace, to some degree, mm -hmm. the greatest story of the state of Israel. Yes, we're a part of it. Yes, we want to be responsible. And also, and I think Ephraim or one of your other guests, I don't remember, said that this needs to be a privilege. I'll tell you in which way. We are now standing at a moment where the state of Israel, Israeli society, is going to be reconstituted. This is a, a, a seminal moment for the state of Israel. And I think that the ultra-Orthodox want to be there in taking that responsibility and playing a role in the reconstitution of the state of Israel. Playing okay. a role requires responsibility. I think it's possible, but needs to be understood that this is a process. It's not a one-night fix. That would be an impossibility, a utopian I, I, dream. It's a yeah. process, and it will go, you know, it needs to be advanced, but it's All a right. process. Now, gentlemen, if this stays the same, there's no consensus about the exemption. Ivrahim, what happens next for Israel? Uh, political deadlock? Government collapses? Or just business as usual? There may be a governmental crisis, and uh, I know there are enough people in Israel uh, that want uh, uh, new elections, uh, primarily to uh, get rid of uh, Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. uh, this is obviously a possibility. So just because this situation, I, I hope that uh, the ultra-Orthodox will uh, make some compromises because they don't want to lose this coalition. This coalition is the best one they can have. Therefore, you know, uh, paradoxically, mm -hmm. the pressure of the society and the secular radicals will push the ultra-Orthodox into accept, accepting okay. some kind of compromise. Akiva, the, 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 the ultra-Orthodox lawmakers tried and failed to bring about a legislation that would preserve that, can, that uh, exemption uh, forever. The Supreme Court also voided the law that was planning to waive the draft of the ultra-Orthodox. Could it be the Supreme Court that ultimately would have to have a say in the near future? Actually, this coincides with the, uh, is the uh, confrontation uh, that was produced by uh, Netanyahu and uh, his gang uh, on the uh, basis of the democratic rules and respecting the uh, uh, judgment of the high court. Uh, but I want to add to uh, the uh, discussion one more thing. I also would like to see the orthodox community and the orthodox politicians mm -hmm. supporting the peace process, because uh, if you want to make sure that we don't need so many soldiers, we need to have peace, ultimately. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, the, the orthodox parties, their politicians, have mm -hmm. left the uh, even option of coalition with the Israeli center-left in order to reach an agreement with the Palestinian on a two-state solution. You can't have it both ways. If you don't okay. want a big... 
What you need is peace. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Rabbi Yoshua, in 20 seconds, please. Can you respond to Akiva? 20 seconds. Well, well first of all, Hashem, let me just congratulate you and your team. I find you very well prepared. So well done for the preparation. And in response to Akiva, you know, the ultra-Orthodox are generally inclined to believe in peace through strength. It's okay. true that they lean towards the right, but that doesn't preclude the possibility of other coalitions. It's on the right table. Right, short of time, gentlemen. Rabbi Yoshua Pfeffer, Akiv Vailda, Professor Ephraim Imba, I really appreciate your insight. Looking forward to talking to you in the near future when there is more development on this particular story. Thank you. This episode was produced by Mohammed Al Aishi, Fenty Monahan, Maria Elena Agostini, and Jimmy Gatahan. Studio Sound was by Yara Atala. The program was edited by Georgios Florocapis, Linguin, Vanessa Connelly, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tuning on Saturday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, how a trip to get flour ended in what Palestinian officials in Gaza are calling a massacre by Israeli forces. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.